everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today we're joined by Tony Vitrano, who's, well, one of the world's leading experts in major event planning and delivery, particularly in the area of transportation. So, Tony, it's an honor to have you on our podcast today. How are you? I'm great, Christian. Thanks for having me today. Oh, well, the pleasure is definitely mine, and I'm looking forward to to having you share your stories of Salt Lake. Uh, you have been in demand. Several people have said, you need to talk to Tony, so really excited to have you on the podcast. You're joining me from an office that looks like that's got sports memorabilia all over the place, so why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days and where you are at. Yes, well, the, the number one most valuable sports memorabilia behind me, of course, is uh, all of my Buffalo Bills collections. So those that know me well know that wherever I am, that's going to be displayed <laughs> prominently. But uh, I live in Las Vegas right now with my family um, and really from Salt Lake City, just continued the path of what we all do, right? Um uh, I've lived in several other cities, like when we had our time in, in Salt Lake, uh, working on the Vancouver Games in 2010, uh, the London Games in 2012, um, and then, of course, um, continuing with the things that I was doing while I was in Salt Lake as well with um, Super Bowls and college football playoffs and all these other special events, Daytona 500, that that seemed to have been my career path for quite some time now. It's hard to believe that uh, I can talk about the 1996 games as my first games. Um, and now that we're uh, about to embark upon another U.S. with partnership in Mexico and Canada on the World Cup in 26, hard to believe that my first World Cup domestically was 94. So, yeah, the years go by fast, don't they? Uh, yes, and that's a great thing, and that's also an unfortunate thing <laughs> that they pass uh, so quickly. Now, I have to ask you, you know, what's going on here with the business currently? Because college football, you mentioned you were college football playoff, but uh, several leagues have said we're not playing college football this season. Uh, who knows what's going to happen with the NFL? And, uh, you know, sports in general has just taken a huge hit. Uh, here with COVID. So what's the current status of the work that you're doing? Well, I, I will say certainly have felt the impact of um, of COVID and the, the especially the ones that you mentioned. However, on the flip side, I've been fortunate that other projects I'm working on are far enough out that they've continued with their planning, maybe slowed a bit during the beginning of COVID, kind of being uncertain about things and trying to adapt to the virtual environment. Um, but so college football, yeah, that's a, up in the air. What's going to happen? We don't know. Um, we've constantly been pushed to the next month and the next month on our planning cycle and the, and the site visits we would do. And we've yet to actually do a site visit to, uh, to Miami for that site. So that's probably the one that's most up in the air. I think um, the likes of the NFL and other leagues are you know, they've got to kind of plan continuously for what it normally would be and then potentially what it might be. Um, but then fortunately for me, I'm pushed out to events that are as near as 2022 for the World Cup in Doha, Qatar, um, and as far out as the 2028 Olympics in Los Angeles. So I've been able to continue in a virtual planning environment for things like that. So 
uh, been fortunate in that regard. When it comes to something like transportation, you know, that's tough to plan for. It's not just a binary thing. Are we going to have the event or are we not going to have the event? Because it could be, well, we're going to have the event, but we're going to do it in a bubble like the NBA is doing, or we're going to have the event, but we're not going to have any spectators, or we're going to have the event, but we're going to have maybe a limited number of spectators. So how do you plan for all of these really odd contingencies that Honestly, we never thought of before March of this year. Yeah. You know what? Still learning that as we go along. Um, I just finished working with the Democratic National Convention in Milwaukee. And that was a perfect example of what you just cited is that it began with it potentially being a 500 plus bus operation, moving people from as far away as Chicago. And then it whittled down to nothing. Um, and then our focus became more on what we were doing, how do we implement all the things that COVID has brought to us, right? And, and I think that people are starting to get a good feel with it and starting to do a really good job, all these little things for distancing and sanitization and, and, and becoming healthy. You know, we were COVID tested every single day uh, in Milwaukee and had to pass that test. And then of course, the next day, answer our questionnaires, get our temperature taken before we were allowed to enter the bubble, so to speak. So they were very, very, very responsible. Um, and I see that sort of thing starting to happen um, along the way, even, even actually with a business that my family owns here in Las Vegas, we own a dance studio separate from all the other fun that I get to do. And, and that was a real up in the air scenario when we first closed because of COVID and then uh, when, the, when the state went to phase two, we were allowed to reopen, but under a whole new world. Um, and how do you tell kids in a dance room that they, you know, as they're moving across the floor, that they got to maintain an exact six feet distance from each other? So it's it's become a little bit challenging, but at the same time, it's been exciting to kind of reinvent the way we do things. Hopefully we will learn our lessons quickly and hopefully we'll get a vaccine and the therapeutics uh, quickly so that uh, this crisis can abate and we can return to some semblance of normal. But enough talk about what's going on today. Let's talk about what happened a long time ago. You mentioned that you worked World Cup 94, you worked Atlanta 96. So how did you get in this industry? How did you end up specializing in transport? as our international friends would say. And how did you find yourself working in Salt Lake City? Well, it's kind of funny how it all went down. Um, I moved to Florida in 84 and uh, worked for a destination management company based in Orlando. Orlando's a big convention town, obviously a lot of tourists and hospitality. And um, I did it um, part-time at first. I actually was working for... Um, the marketing department of a financial institution when I first moved down there. And uh, I had the opportunity to do uh, some part-time work on weekends and I, I was fresh out of college. I'll, I'll take whatever I can get. And I just really found quickly a love for being on the ground. Um, now that I'm getting older, I'm not so, I can't put as much time on the ground. <laughs> the feet and back hurt a little bit more, but um, that's kind of what led to the full-time position with that destination management company doing a lot of shuttle work for the cruise ships and convention groups and citywides and things of that nature. And then while I was there, I actually wanted to start a division within that company that would focus more on sports and different types of events beyond just conventions. 
And I remember kind of being laughed out the door by my general manager at the time saying, no, Orlando's a convention town. That's where the money is. And after being told no two or three times, I just took a shot. And uh, it was right before uh, World Cup of 94 was coming into play. Um, I had made some contacts with the folks with the local organizing committee in Orlando. It was Orlando was one of the venues. And it just went from there. And then, uh, you know, the folks that I worked with in 94 at World Cup, uh, some of them moved on to 96 in Atlanta. And, and I got that call. Um, Nick Judson was the was the gentleman that called me. He was working uh, World Cup 94 logistics and I was working transport. And then he went on to transport in, in um, uh, Atlanta and I got the call. And then obviously that broadened as far as relationships. Um, those relationships included the likes of Tom Halloran, um, who was our director of transport in Salt Lake, uh, as well as Jerry Anderson, um, who is unfortunately no longer with us. Um, with at the time when we were in 94, it was the ACT team. And then he went on with HOK and eventually Populous. But um, when I was in Atlanta, um, got to know the many great people. Uh, and Jerry moved on to um, Salt Lake City. And Tom did as well. Uh, that time period was right when the transition was happening with Mitt coming in and taking over. Um, with all of the, those issues taking place. And um, I believe that one of the directors of transport before Tom got there had just left or been let go. And Jerry called me up. And this was right around the timing of, I don't even think Tom had taken the position of director yet. But Jerry called me up and said, what do you think about coming out to Salt Lake? And I said, when do you need me? Um, I had such a great experience with him um, and with Tom and with others in Atlanta that I, I couldn't wait to get there. So in 99, um, I arrived. Um, I remember it was Memorial Day weekend of 99. And, um, and the, the first thing that I did was, uh, well, before that hand, uh, Tom filled the position. And I remember sitting down with him. I had a visit with him and Larry Ferroli um, before I actually accepted the position. And I remember saying to, to them, I said, wow, while I'm here, I'm going to turn 40. And uh, Larry said, well, you're going to turn 40 somewhere. You might as well do it here with us. <laughs> and that was kind of the, yeah, you know what? Let's do this. And, and that's how I got to Salt Lake City. Wow. Now, had you been to Salt Lake City before? Never. All right. So what do you think? Because it's a bit different than Florida. I will tell you that... Um, there's probably three places that I've lived with in my life that were drastically different than the way people describe them. Salt Lake was one, and I mean that in a positive way. I really enjoyed Salt Lake. I really enjoyed the community, people of Salt Lake. Um, my house was up in Jeremy Ranch, so there was something about that drive through the canyon every day that just sort of, by the time I got up there, I felt at peace and you know, even going into work in the morning, it was just like it kind of just set your mind in the right place. Um, London was one of those same experiences. Oh, the weather's bad and the food's bad. And that was nothing like what I experienced in London. On the flip side, um, everyone raved about Vancouver. And other than the two and a half months of sunshine, it rained every single day. And <laughs> it felt like I was going to work in the dark and coming home in the dark every single day. So, 
that was the the uh, the anomaly to the to the positive. But I loved Salt Lake. I love. I, I regret to this day that I ever sold my house in Jeremy Ranch. And I just went back um, about a month ago um, and stayed the weekend up in Park City. Brought my family. Visited Colin Hilton up at the sports park and put the kids on the obstacle courses. And my seven-year-old daughter has been talking about Park City ever since and wants us to move there. So and I, I would have no hesitancy whatsoever to leave the blazing hot desert of Las Vegas and move to Park City. I loved it up there. Well, there's no doubt that your home value would have appreciated substantially. I know some markets have suffered uh, when it comes to home values, particularly with this COVID thing, but uh, the market here is still pretty hot here in, in Utah, particularly up there in the Park City, Jeremy Ranch area. The, the homes are still selling fast and furious. Yeah, my friends that are there like Colin and Richard Bezemir and um, Jim Brown, they'll, they'll all quickly remind me just how much more my my house is worth now and and I asked them just not to remind me of that. <laughs> All right, well we won't dwell on the unpleasant memories there <laughs> of selling your house. So you come into transportation or transport. Um transport's a big area and so you've got different things that different people are responsible for in the area of transport. So what specifically was your role in the area of transport? Well, when Tom brought me in, um I was looking after two things. Um I kind of always break it down to venues and systems, right? So we have venue transport plans, which would include parking and load zones and traffic plans and signage and wayfinding and all that, vehicle screening. And then we've got the actual transport systems to, to move our athletes and media and so forth. So when I first got there, I was focusing on the beginning development stages of the venue transport plans. And then later on, we brought in Mike Witte, um, who took that over. Um, and then Tom shifted me to focus on the, the biggest um, transport operation that we were going to have was obviously the spectator system with the borrowed bus program that we um, that Tom negotiated with the Federal Transit Administration. Um, and that was, you know, that thousands of buses. And the, the, we had to obviously allocate them to the different venues, use them for staff and volunteer shuttles as well displacement of current staff, such as at Deer Valley, who could no longer park where they once did. Um, and I even remember having the opportunity to have input on the design of the Park City Transit Center, which is, you know, just on the backside of Main Street there. So any anytime I brought my kids up there, I say, hey, you see that? Daddy kind of helped build that thing, not with hammer and nails, but I had a part in it. And that's always, you know, a proud moment to show them uh, the things that, you know, I got to be a, a part of. So the spectator system was, was huge. You know, we had, um, I don't know how many thousands of buses that we put on flatbed trucks and, you know, you can't drive transit buses from Cleveland to Salt Lake city, their gear ratios and transmissions aren't set for that. Um, so it was a big logistics move. Um, and, um, you know, I was, I was honored that Tom put me in charge of something that was that important to the games overall. Well, why don't you dive into that a little bit more? This big logistics move. What I mean, every city, every host city of a games has its own specific challenges when it comes to transport. 
aside from moving all of these uh, transit buses from various parts of the country to here to Salt Lake City, what were some of the other uh, transport challenges that you faced or that we faced collectively? And what kinds of plans did you put in place to resolve those challenges? Well, as you could imagine, when all of this was negotiated with these transit agencies, and I can't remember how many we had across the country, but we did have them as far away as Cleveland and Buffalo and that sort of thing. Um, part of the challenge was where could these buses be placed when we were doing um, movements that had steep inclines? And obviously tra transit buses is built for fixed city routes, usually not dealing with um, uh, inclines. We did have some buses that I call we got from San Francisco that were a little bit more adapt to that type of thing. Um, but that was probably the allocation of those buses and where they could be and could not be was a challenge. Um, we had several buses that agencies delivered to us six months before the games because they had already scheduled for those buses to become retired you know, it was good timing for them because the, uh, per, the, per the Federal Transit Administration, in order to get funding for new buses, you have to have your buses in service for a certain amount of time before you retire them. So some of them decided, quite frankly, to dump their retired buses on us. Um, and so when we got them, we, you know, we kind of had to scramble. Of course, we wanted them, but we had to figure out where we could place them for six months before we put them in operation. And then when we did put them in operation, as you can imagine, there was a bit of a challenge getting all of those buses fired up and working again. Um, but that leads me to probably my best story of the games that I'll let you cue me up to when you're ready. <laughs> Well, you can tell your stories whenever you want. The only thing that I ask is the, the goosebump moment we typically save to the end of the game. So whenever you want to tell your stories, you go ahead. Uh, it's my podcast, so I can make up the rules. I can do whatever I want. So uh, we, we will go in whatever direction you want to go. I will save the goosebump moment for later. This is, this is probably, though, my, my favorite story of the games. We were probably about four days or so away from the start of the games. And as you could imagine, running around, driving around, you know, making sure everything um, is ready. And I was in my car and I got a phone call and answered it in that sort of rushed manner that we were in at that time. Yep, this is Tony. And uh, at the other end of the phone, the answer was, um, uh, Tony, this is Roger Penske. And I was so busy and having getting so many calls, the name at first didn't register. And I went, yep, what do you need? <laughs> and as he began speaking, uh, Roger uh, said to me, well, Tony, um, you know, I, I've got part ownership up at Deer Valley and some of the buses that you guys are running, are pulling up to that front drive and blowing a little bit of smoke and dripping a little bit of oil and, you know, I, I'm getting a little pressure on that. So as he's talking, he starts telling the story. I obviously then go, Oh my goodness, I'm speaking to Roger Penske. And, um, 
we got to talking and um, long story short, I said, okay, okay, Mr. Penske, you know, all of a sudden it went from, yeah, what do you need to, okay, Mr. Penske. And um, I said, let me see what I can do. So I organized with our venue transport manager out at Soldier Hollow to make some changes so that the buses that were, you know, emitting a little bit of smoke or whatnot were out in, in a very rural area and limited usage and all that. And we got it done. And um, I, you know, Roger called me back and said, you know, Tony, I, I can't thank you enough for that. You didn't have to do that. And I appreciate it. But what can I do for you? And I said, well, you know, Ms. Penske, I think we're, we're pretty good. Um, uh, you know, the only I mentioned to him, as I did to you, the only thing that we're still trying to do is we have about 40 buses left that were delivered to us six months ago that we're still working on getting fired up. We've got mechanics and supervisors from uh, UTA up here, and I think we'll get there. But, you know, that's our only issue right now. He said, OK, well, I've, I've got, um, you know, my Detroit diesel operation in Salt Lake City. If you need any of my guys, you call Steve Smith down there and you tell him that you knew you need some help. Well, the next day, Christian, I was in the bus yard up at Heber Valley, you know, our main yard and uh, six guys walk up on me. And, um, you know, there were a lot of things going on at the time. I, you know, I was getting calls from, uh, you know, environmentalists and, and everywhere you can imagine, you know, having their their issue and their their moment with the games. So these six guys walk up on me and the, the first guy in the lead says, I'm looking for Tony Vitrano. And at first I'm thinking, I think I'm going to be arrested here. I don't know what's going on. So <laughs> it turned out to be Steve Smith of the Detroit Diesel Operation in Salt Lake City. And I said, well, I'm Tony. And he said, Tony, Mr. Penske asked me to come up here with my crew. He said, you needed some help. What do you need us to do? And they went at it that day and got 20 of the 40 fired up. And we're ready to come back the next day. And I said, he said, you know, what do you need from us tomorrow? I said, Steve, I really appreciate that. I think the UTA guys, man, you helping us bang out half, you know, 50% of the inventory that was down. That's a big help. So I, I really appreciate that. And I think the UTA guys can, can do the rest. And, and he said, okay, well, Mr. Penske said, I'm here to do whatever you need me to do. So that was just an exciting story of the games, because as you can imagine, I certainly didn't receive an invoice for their time that day. That was just something that Roger did. And then it, it turned out that Roger was the chairman of the host committee for the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 40 in Detroit, where he's from. And we carried on that relationship. I had not met him face to face until then. Um, and now um, every Daytona 500, uh, I look Roger up and I get, you know, a few minutes to say hello to him in the garages before the race. And so it's something that has not died out since Salt Lake City. So that's probably one of my most fun stories of the games. And it all started out with, what do you need? Correct. <laughs> what do you need? I'm busy. <laughs> that's a fantastic story. And it actually highlights an important point. You know, it's not just the, it's not just the, the fleet that you need, but uh, you needed those mechanics to also maintain the fleet. And of course you need drivers to drive all of these uh, buses these transit buses. So where did you source all of the drivers? Well, that was actually another program uh, negotiated with the assistance of the Federal Transit Administration. Um, and that was was Tom's effort to, to say, why don't we do what we'll call a drive for the gold program? Um, because the, the buses didn't come from those agencies with drivers. We separately had to say, 
do you want to come drive for the games? Um, and I will tell you, I was a bit overwhelmed at the number of drivers that were willing to take their vacation time or take time off without pay if they had already used their vacation time to come do this. Um, and then even that was a bit of a challenge once we got them because we had to align drivers with the type of buses that they knew how to drive. So, you, and of course, if we had 20 buses from Cleveland and we ended up with drivers from Cleveland, well, that was an easy one. We matched them up with the drivers that they were, uh, the buses they were already familiar with each day. But there were some moments where we had to kind of run through some training. On the flip side, I'm trying to remember what cities, some cities gave us brand new buses. They had wanted to showcase, um, you know, hey, look what we have. And I actually, I think Cleveland may have been one of those cities. And what we did was on the marquee on the front of the buses, every one of them that had it, we put the city that they were from. So these buses would be driving around with Cleveland on the front, right? Um, and it was something that I think everyone was really proud of. So where you had that driver, for example, who was from Cleveland, who was driving driving a bus from Cleveland, and the bus said, "Hey, I'm Cleveland." That, that was exciting because that that really made all of the the folks that came in feel as though we are showcasing what we're doing to the nation here, right? Obviously to the world, but to them it was, "Hey, we're all participating." from whatever walk of life, from whatever part of the corner of the U.S. that we've come from. So that was kind of cool. And then not only do you, they've become familiar with the equipment and, and as you mentioned, you were, you were trying to match people with equipment that they already knew how to operate, but then they have to learn all the routes, right? So, so what's the process that you go through to make sure that people are familiar with all of the routes that they're potentially going to be driving during the games? Well, I will tell you, anybody that knows me from then and even now will know that I approach things in a very old school way. And the reason for that isn't because I'm, you know, adverse to uh, technology and the advancement of the things that we now have, but it is more so about breaking down that massive operation into manageable compartments. So every day, if I've got X number of buses and I've got some on contingency and I've got a rotation of drivers with days off, I wanna put them in an environment that's repetitive so that they're able to get a feel for what they have to do and not be thrown a curveball every other day. Oh, well, here's a new route that you've got to run. Oh, I haven't really run that route. I mean, and let's face it, we've all, tried to come up with innovative ways to train drivers, but at the end of the day, their best training is to sit behind the wheel of their bus and drive that route. You can give them maps, you can give them video instructions, you can do all kinds of things. And that was another thing that I remember as a, as a, a great story of the games. Uh, Frazier came to me probably about three months out, I think, before the games. And he said to me, Tony, um, if I could give you a, a little more money for your operation, what would it be and what would you use it on? And the number one thing I remember telling him is telling him is if I could get the drivers in a few days earlier to be able to physically run those routes and not expect them to come in a day before 
get a route packet, and then expect to be spot on on the first day of, a, of the operation. And he said, done and dusted. And that was huge for him to have done that. That was enormous for us to succeed. I know it's a challenge for many games because it's a budgetary issue. But the fact that we could get those drivers in and do just that, you're going to be on this route at this venue for the entire duration of the games. And you're going to get to drive that route for two or three days before you ever have to go live. And that, to me, was one of the key elements to why we were spot on on day one. It frustrates me when I hear games and, and local organizing committees say, well, you know, those first few days are going to be a struggle, but then it'll even itself out. Well, in my opinion, if we have 17 days to showcase what we can do, I don't want to burn the first five figuring it out. And um, that was huge. That was that was how we got it done. That was critical in our success. Uh, you raise a very important point. You think, oh, well, just a few days to iron it out. But if it's five days out of 17 days, then really that's about 30 percent. One of the questions that that often comes up in the area of transport is, well, how do you determine just how many buses do you need? You know, and how do you how do you plan all these routes? I mean, you have the competition schedule, so you know when sessions are going to start and when they're going to end. But, you know, are we going to be running buses every 30 minutes from the village or every 15 minutes or how, you know, how often are we going to be running these things? You know, what's the process that you go through, you know, for Salt Lake particularly, but for events generally, what's the process you go through to try to plan out all of that demand? That's a great question. And I think it actually um, relates to where the IOC with the new norm and some of the turnkey solutions that they're looking to implement to be more operationally efficient, and more cost effective. I think that that's a great question because um, for so long, uh, the organizing committees were working off of past games, uh, what those service level agreements may have been for those different client groups, um, as well as what the technical manual for transport advised and i emphasize advised because um some of those organizing committees didn't have the confidence to sit down with the stakeholders such as world broadcasters or obs or um, the ioc themselves and you know those when cocoms or technical reviews and say understand that the technical manual says this but in this city this is what will work better. And nine times out of 10, you'll first get a little bit of pushback because there's a certain level of service that they're used to. But what I found when working with the IOC in that regard and with those stakeholders is it's one thing to say, we can't do that here. It's another thing to say, but here's what we can do and why it'll be a better level of service. And not a lot of organizing committees seem to have that panache, um, I'll tell you right now. And, and you know, I, I'm still working to this day on LA 28 with the likes of Doug Arnott. And Doug Arnott was one of those guys that uh, had that panache and um, truly has a love for the success of the operation in the games and would flat out tell you what wasn't going to work. Um, Jerry was that type of guy too. Um, and Doug has, has a little bit more of a, 
you you idiots, this won't work. <laughs> and, and but Jerry had more of a way of making you feel like an idiot, but doing it in a very kind way. <laughs> so I love working with both those guys. Uh, but um, you know that that's really the approach that we took in in Salt Lake was all right. Let's break it down. Kind of my philosophy of the routes. Let's break it down venue by venue and do the things that work here. Um, you know, you look at a place like London, um, we probably could have operated without a T3 car service in London simply because London was so robust with its black cab service, right? Could have figured out how to negotiate with them and, and let drivers who, you know, the drivers in London have to be trained for three or four years before they're allowed to actually drive. I never got in a black cab in London and the driver told me he did not know where I was going or where I needed to be. Um, and so that's that's what I think helped us to succeed in Salt Lake and down to the last person, whether it was the broadcasters or the media or the uh, NOCs, that they, they're all going to listen to you if you have a valid approach, if you have a reasonable approach. Let's face it, in transport, everybody wants to be dropped off at the front door. We know that can't happen. All right. What's the solution that works? And that was our approach. And it, and everyone, um, I think, was really happy with the result in the end. Well, let's talk about that being dropped off at the front door, because here in Salt Lake City, everybody was very accustomed to just driving up to the front door of a venue and then walking in. You know, it's a very easy or it was uh, very easy to park here, uh, to, to drive around here. It wasn't a huge amount of traffic, even though there was a lot of road construction, which caused some problems at the time. So what do you do when spectators all of a sudden realize, oh, you mean I got to walk a kilometer <laughs> to get to the venue? Why can't I just uh, pull up to the front door? Yeah, that, that's a good question as well. I know uh, Utah Olympic Park was one of the challenges, right? Getting up that road to the jump course and, and that sort of, and the bobsled luge and all that. And, you know, what we decided to do was you, you always had that balance of, well, if we started to run a shuttle system from the base of it off 224 and up and down that road, we're going to back up our own road. Uh, there wasn't enough road infrastructure to be able to run the number of buses to, to accommodate every spectator that might want to go up and down the road. So we got a little strategic and we decided to create what we called a courtesy shuttle. Um, and it actually ended up the way we had hoped. And that was that the folks that really needed that assistance that couldn't make that hike used the courtesy shuttle. But the majority of the population walked up the road and enjoyed the day. Um, I think another big part of what we did was the development of the Know Before You Go program. Another thing that a lot of organizing committees don't do with regards to, especially in a winter games, with regards to the timing of leaving your destination, arriving at the venue, parking, but then getting to where your viewing or seating area is. That's a challenge in a winter games, right? Once you've parked at that parking lot that we had at the bottom of the of UOP, there's still a journey to get to where you got to go. So you've got to set the expectation that I remember people saying, 
this says that if I'm staying at such and such in Salt Lake City, I've got to leave two hours before the start of the session. Is it going to take me two hours to drive up I-80? No. What we're giving you is out your door and in your seat. We want to make sure that you don't cut it short and that you're you're there for the start of the session. Um, and once people realize that, they they embraced it. They they left in enough time. They got there in enough time, and they got to see what they needed to see. Tell me a minute about uh, transport for ceremonies because that's you know the opening ceremony is kind of the big thing. Happens early, usually has more spectators than any other event, and in a, in a winter games and uh it's it's the first real test of that uh, transport system so what was that like yeah ceremonies actually went off uh, probably the best ceremonies again of any games i've done um and again we we separated our systems so that managers were focused just on those certain things um and uh working with the university of utah was fantastic um I think overall Salt Lake was fantastic because we had more space and roadway width and infrastructure than probably most places. It certainly wasn't like a Torino, Italy, right? Where you've got far less of that at your disposal. Um, so whilst I wasn't directly involved in the operation of the ceremonies that day and the bus movements, we had a great set of managers and directors for each of those systems that that made it run flawlessly. All right, Tony, this has been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed uh, swapping these stories, but you probably have a few on your list that I haven't got to. Um, anything that we haven't covered yet that you want to go over, stories that you want to share before we get into our final segment? Well, you're right. I mean, gosh, there's so many stories that um, if I really started to think about it, um, I could get into. Maybe the one that pops up um, is what we all went through on September 11th, 2001. Um, I remember starting my day and was in the habit of turning on ESPN and, you know, just listening to the sports updates while I got ready. And, um, you know, we all saw that what, you know, we all had that probably same feeling when we heard that that first plane hit the towers. Um, that it was, you know, in error. And then I saw the ticker on um, ESPN and, you know, switch over to ABC or whatnot. And, you know, then I just remember sitting at the edge of my bed and, you know, in disbelief like the rest of us. And then, of course, we were, you know, called off from going to our to the office. Um, and I, I was in my house by myself at the time. And, um, just one of those strange feelings, like not knowing what to do. I was very anxious. I, I, I it got to the point, I think like all of us where we didn't want to continue to repeatedly watch what happened. Um, and I got out of the house and I remember, and I, I just told this story to my kids when I brought them up to, um, the Utah Olympic park a month ago. Um, I remember driving up. I don't know why I went there. I drove up to the sports park and I, I drove up the road to where there was a guard shack. And uh, I wish I could remember his name, but the guard and I sat on the Jersey barrier that was sitting there um, for three hours and just 
it was kind of like two lost souls who were consoling one another uh, during that time. Um, you know, just trying to figure out what was happening with our world. Um, that stands out in my mind. And, and that part in that road um, where I recalled sitting on that Jersey barrier, I pointed out to my kids when we went up there a month ago and said, when 9-11 happened, daddy sat right there um, talking to the security guard, um, just trying to sort it all out. You know, it's interesting for them to to go to places. They 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 see me get on a plane and leave and they can only envision or imagine. Um, it was fun to show them, you know, I was right here. Um, or I, I had something to do with that transit center, right? That one right there, you know, oh, I used to eat here, you know, uh, Chimayo still there on park at on main street on, in park city, you know, we went there, you know, so it, it's, it, it's nice for them to, to grasp some reality of what I do sometimes. That's really, really great that you were able to share that with your children. You know, I, I remember that same day, uh, it was, it was a bit of a daze, but then we realized that we've got to get back to work and Mitt, you know, kind of shepherded us all. What impacts, if any, were there to the transportation plans? You know, you, so you've spent all this time planning all of this out. Then 9-11 happens. There's a lot of added security. Any impacts on the work that you were doing? Well, I would say that we were all a bit more diligent about the plans we were already in motion with. Um, because obviously for games with the athletes and the media, to a certain extent, we already have, um, a significant, um, security plan in place with the sanitization of the buses and keeping them in a bubble to bubble scenario and keeping them secured. Um, I, I think the biggest challenge, I do know we had some adjustments to where the perimeters were going to live that change where we thought we were going to be able to drop off. So Snow Basin comes to mind as one of the ones that we made the most adjustments to um, because the drop point at the venue was right along the backside of the main grandstand seating. And so all of a sudden it wasn't that we could just pick people up in parking rides down at the, at the base and shuttle them up and expect that they weren't going to go through security screening until they were there and now going through the bags at the venue. So that was one of the biggest changes was that all that security operation then began at those parking rides so that by the time spectators loaded those buses and got dropped right up behind those grandstands, they were already screened. So it was things like that, you know, just making adjustments to um, where we could do what we normally do. Okay, Tony, anything else on your list before we get to our final segment? No, I think that I could talk to you for hours. You know that, Christian, but. <laughs> I would welcome it. I would welcome <laughs> it, but we'll get to the end here. Okay. Now we have our final three questions for you, Tony. The first question is a music question. So when you were working in Salt Lake, or up there in Park City, as you were commuting up and down Parley's Canyon, was there any particular music that you listened to 
a group or an artist that whenever you hear them today, it just you know, really takes your mind back to your time in Salt Lake. Absolutely. Matchbox 20. Um, you know, they had come out with one of maybe their first or second album. It was a big hit. Uh, they even performed, um, I don't think it was the E Center, but it was, um, uh, oh, I forgot the venue that was south of Salt Lake, but they came and performed and I saw them there. Um, that was it. I remember going up and down the canyon and playing that music um, quite a bit. Um, and when I first got there, I actually had a convertible. And so when the weather was great, that top was down going through Parley's Canyon and, and the music was blaring. So anytime I hear Matchbox 20 now, I think it's all like. Is there a specific Matchbox 20 song that you want to add to our playlist or do I just choose one from their catalog? Yeah, you could choose one. I, I, there were just so many off that one album. I mean, 3 a.m. was their big hit off that album, the first big hit. And there was um, there was a lot of good hits off that album. So I'll let you choose. <laughs> All right. We'll throw some Matchbox 20 on our Spotify playlist. Now let's go to food. You mentioned Chumayo in Park City. But was there a particular restaurant that you like to frequent there, either in Park City or downtown in Salt Lake City, while you were working for the organizing committee? Yeah, well, I'm sure you've heard from others that if we start to talk about favorite haunts in Salt Lake, Portacol comes up on, on many occasions. Um, so much so that we jokingly would call it Porta Slock um, because so many of us would go there. Um, I remember also because being a big Bills football fan, I never miss a Bills game. And of course, I had to I had to have a spot in front of the TV. Uh, back then, I don't think Direct TV was carrying. I don't know if you remember I had Direct TV, but I don't know if they, they were not carrying the NFL Sunday ticket. So if you wanted to watch your team, you had to go somewhere that, you know, a sports bar that was showing it. So uh, Portacol had all those TVs down on their, in their basement. And I remember sitting there normally ready on the East coast to watch a 1 PM kickoff. And now I'm ready to watch it at 11, which meant I had to get there at 10. And I remember thinking, this is just, so I made it a habit to go to Portacol and go there for breakfast, which they would serve, right? So <laughs> breakfast, and now I'm going to watch the game. So definitely a port call, like right across from our office was, I recall, the Lazy Moon Saloon, I think it was. And so many of us made our way there. Uh, but because I lived up in Park City, my favorites were certainly uh, Zoom was there at the time, uh, Chamayo, and then probably my all-time favorite at the top of the hill was Grappa um, and just took my family there when we were there a month ago as well. So those were my favorites. All right. Fantastic. Excellent choices. Uh, for those that are no longer around, we will just put them on our list. For those that are still there, we've got a map on the website that has pins for all of the restaurants that people have nominated. And so we'll add your pins to the map. And now our final question for you today Tony, what was your favorite memory of working the games in Salt Lake? I'm sure what I'm going to say came out of the majority of people's mouths, but without a doubt, the moment when the Miracle on Ice team lit the cauldron, um, lit the flame, that was, I'm getting that goosebump right now. Um, just to see those guys together and and attach it to what they did in 1980 and, you know, 
just rem- I remember watching that gold medal game in 1980 when we beat the Russians and it was just, you know, that moment in U.S. history that you'll just always get goosebumps over. And to see those guys together to light our flame was that was my moment without a doubt. Oh, well, that's a very worthy moment indeed, Tony. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and also sharing so many other stories. Now, if people want to learn more about the work that you're currently doing in the area of events or they want to just catch up on Salt Lake, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you? Well, I am on LinkedIn as well as I'm still old school with regards to how I communicate. Give me a call. Send me an email. My email is tony.vitrano at gd2global.com. Anyone want to give me a call? I've had the same phone number for ages. So email me and I'll be happy then to share my phone number and happy to chat. All right. Fantastic, Tony. Thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll talk with you again soon. Tony, thank you. Thank you, Christian. It's been a pleasure. 